0: Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the ages. Those are the concluding words of the Gospel of Matthew. In those words, I think Jesus answered once and for all time that question, from where does my help come? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the ages. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I wonder if there are some this morning who are here who need to hear that word. God does not forsake his people. Jesus does not forsake his people. He is with them always. You see, the season of Lent is about naming reality. It invites us to face the realities of our lives, the light and the darkness, the the healing and the brokenness, the help and the helplessness. And reality can be painful, but it's always our friend. Because the way to healing, the way to experience God's life-giving love and help is not by avoiding the sin and the helplessness and the brokenness, but it's by facing it head on, naming it for what it is, and asking for God to shine his searching and healing light into it. In Psalm 121 today, we are invited into a journey of ascent. Psalm 121 is one of these psalms of pilgrimage. It's for those who are on a journey, and you can think of that in very particular terms, in terms of the, tr- the journey of Lent that we're on, or you can think of it in terms of much larger general terms, the journey of life, the journey of marriage, the journey of singleness, the journey of vocation, the journey of education. And Psalm 121 is for those who along the way on the journey have come very w- become very aware of their own inadequacy. It's for those who have come to a point where they don't feel like they'll be able to make it and they can't do it on their own. Help is needed. And Psalm 121 is divided into two sections. The first two verses, verses 1 and 2, are a question about where is help going to come from and then a really succinct answer. And then verses 3 through 8 are assurance and encouragement that help will indeed come. Verses 1 and 2 are composed in the first-person style. So it's somebody saying, where is my help going to come from? It's very personal language. And then verses 3 to 8 are in a style of direct address. The speaker changes. It's no longer the person asking the question who is talking, but somebody else is talking to the person who is asking that question originally and giving them assurance. Verses 1 and 2 revolve around the key word, help. And verses three through eight revolve around the keyword keep. And so let's take each section in turn. Verses one and two are about naming the source of help. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Now, you may be wondering, like me, the very first question I ask when I read this is, what do the hills have to do with help? There's lots of answers that could be given, but one is that in the ancient Near East, hills, high hills especially, along with the temples that were often fixed upon those hills, were images of the power and the dwelling and the presence of deities on earth. Where heaven and earth touched, where the gods met with human beings was on high hills, their power and their presence. And so the question the psalmist is asking by lifting his eyes up to the hills is like, where is my power for the journey of life going to come from? Who is going to take care of me today? Where am I going to find strength for the journey ahead? Now, I think this is a question that kind of undergirds and shapes our lives, whether we're explicit about it or implicit all the time, pretty much. But there are certain seasons of life where the question of where is my help going to come from where am I gonna get the strength and power that I need to continue on? Kind of bubbles to the surface in a particularly acute way. There can be seasons of doubt and existential crisis is one example. So uh, I was reading this past week Leo Tolstoy, a section of his Confessions, which is pretty intense, but here are a few words from it. He says, this is what happened to me. In the course of a whole year when almost every minute I was asking myself whether I should end it all, my heart was tormented with an agonizing feeling. And this feeling I can only describe as searching for God. Tolstoy really wrestled with this deep longing for God, yet a questioning as to whether God really did exist and Karen was involved. And he continues on. He says, this search for God was not born of reason, but of an emotion because it was a search that arose from the depths of the heart. It was a feeling of dread, of loneliness, of forlornness in the midst of all that was going on around me. And it was a feeling of hope for someone's help. From where does my help come from? A question that bubbles to the surface in the midst of existential crisis. And it's something that bubbles to the surface in the midst of of suffering and life crisis as well. Someone is hit with a debilitating illness and they're stuck at home and can't go anywhere. Someone is filled with resentment over a relational breakdown in the past, and, and it's got them, and they don't know how to get let go of it. Someone is caring for family members who are dying of cancer, and they feel like their family is slipping between their fingers. Someone is caring for children who are struggling and lashing out and insecure, and they don't know what to do about it. Someone is facing facing financial crisis, and they don't know how they're going to pay their bills. We could go on and on about a million different reasons, but in those moments, we cry out, Lord, where does my help come from? And then there are those seasons of just spiritual discipline and fasting, such as Lent. In Ash Wednesday, we have this invitation to observe a Holy Lent, and it says, we invite you to a season of fasting, self-examination, and self-denial, and prayer as you observe a Holy Lent. And normally, we get in the habit of giving something up. It can be anything from chocolate to YouTube. But Lent can be a particularly difficult season when it's situated in a culture that promotes individualism and self-sufficiency. Because I find, I don't know about you, but as you engage in these spiritual disciplines, as you engage in the simple act of fasting from something, Yes, it is a moment for God to work in your life. Yes, it is a moment to experience deep healing and spiritual satisfaction. But it's often a moment where kind of, your powerlessness and your inability is also brought to the surface as well. These experiences of these spiritual disciplines of fasting are never quite what we as grand as we hope they will be at the very beginning. Yes, they form us, but they also remind us of our deep spiritual poverty. Just how much we depend on the goodness and the graciousness and the radical mercy of God in our lives. From where does my help come? See, the psalmist poses a question that we all ask. I think we ask it all the time. But it really bubbles to the surface at particular times. And the psalmist doesn't waste any time in giving an answer. Verse 2, right away he answers this question. My help comes from the Lord, Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. The one who personally revealed his name to his people in the Exodus. The one who personally created all things out of nothing in the Genesis. I think this is a really simple statement, but it's easy for us to forget how profound its basic truth is. In our technological sophistication and material wealth, we often look for a lot more complex answers to the deep questions of life, like where does my help come from? (laughs) and it's easy for us to grasp for answers to that question that are far less fundamental. So I think of how easy it is to say, where's my help going to come from, and look to Capitol Hill. Surely help's going to come from there, and we're quickly disappointed. How easy it is to look to Wall Street. (laughs) Maybe my help in the future will come from there and how fragile the markets become. You see, it's not government policies, it's not market forces that ultimately are gonna be be able to help us in the end. My personal help, the psalmist says, comes from the universal Lord, the creator of all that is, seen and unseen. There is no creaturely thing that is ultimately gonna be able to help us in the end. Only the creator, the source of all created things. Will be able to preserve our life because He is the one that has first given it. That is why I think our weekly recital of the Apostles' Creed is such a personal and radical confession. It's an act of searching and longing and commitment. It's not just a random string of truths that we state about God and we sign the dotted line at the end and we're like, good, we've got it all right. It's about answering the question from where does my help come? I believe in God. The Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. See, in verse 1, the psalmist begins with a very personal question that arises from the concrete experiences of life. And then right away in verse 2, situates that question within a much larger framework, a vaster vision, God and his creative power and goodness and generosity. And what he does in that is he situates whatever we're going on is going on in our lives within a much wider context as well. Our lives are not ultimately teetering on the brink in a world that is ultimately controlled by dark and chaotic and unpredictable forces. Our lives are anchored in the goodness of the Creator. And he is to uphold. He is committed to upholding and preserving and caring and maintaining and redeeming his people. Now, if you're anything like me, this truth is a wonderful truth, <laughs> but in actual experience, it's hard often to feel it. It's that truth that we confess every Sunday morning, and then Monday through Saturday, we may not believe it all the time. And part of that is just the brokenness of our lives, this side of heaven. But I think it's more than that. I think it's also part of it is the spiritual battle that's going on. What is it in Genesis 3 that the serpent wanted to do to the human beings? The first thing is, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And notice, God said you can eat of every tree in the garden except this one. So what is Satan doing? He's taking God's radical generosity and he is twisting it so that we doubt the goodness of God. And that's why I'm so thankful that the psalmist voice in verses 1 to 2 is not the only voice, because we're not left with just us asking and answering a question. In verses 3 through 8, another voice enters the picture, not our own voice, not the psalmist voice, and then ensures assures us and encourages us that the confession that we have made is indeed true. Verses three, 3 through 8 is about naming the assurance of this help. Look at verses 3 through 6. It is about the one who will help you. The Lord is your keeper, says. Verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Two images are shown up to kind of give us a picture of who God is. It's one of slumbering and one of shade. The slumbering thing, the psalmist makes a positive affirmation by way of negation. He says, the one who keeps you does not slumber and he does not sleep. Now, that sounds a little bit simple, (laughs) God does not sleep like we do. But underneath that is something more profound. God does not sleep because he does not need to rest and replenish because God has no limits to his life and his energy. God does not need to slumber and sleep like we are because God is not a creature like we are. God is unceasing resources of life, plenitude of goodness, abundance of energy. God does not need to rest. So what's the upshot of this? The upshot of this is that there is never a time when the Lord needs to attend to his own self-care, and therefore cannot attend to the care of his people. There is never a time when that's the case. There's never a time when God is not actively attentive and caring for your life and for my life and for our life together. So what is the shape of this care and this involvement and this attention? And that's where the word keeps or keeper becomes so key. In verses three through eight, keeps and keeper shows up six times. It's the Hebrew word shamar. The first time we see it is in Genesis two, verse 15. When God creates human beings and then he gives them a vocation, he says, I want you to work the garden and shamar it, take care of it, tend to the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 4, verse 9, after Cain has murdered Abel in a horrible act and is confronted about it, he says, am I my brother's keeper? There's this dissonance in the narrative where Cain has not kept his brother. He has not cared for. He has not tended life. And then finally, that great priestly blessing in Numbers 6. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Keeping is all of that. So keeping describes the right relationship that human beings are meant to have with all of God's created world, and it describes the right relationship that human beings are to have with one another, and keeping ultimately describes the way that God relates to his people. This tender cherishing, this guarding and protecting and preserving and watching over. So I like the way that one theologian put it, He says, as easy as it seems to lose our grip on God, it's nice to know that God does not ultimately lose his grip on us. And it's nice to know that our security as a community of faith and as individuals does not ultimately rest on us and our ability to get everything right. So that's the image of not slumbering. And then we're given the image of shade to drive this point home a bit further. Verses five and six, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. It's this protective imagery of God as a shield, but not just a shield, like a sanctuary. Here, the psalmist speaks of divine shelter and protection. Of God as a guardian and a caretaker for his people. And the imagery shows us that this protection holds fast in the challenges of the day and in the insecurities of the night, in the hours of our laboring and in the hours of our sleeping. God's preserving presence, even when we aren't able to think about and care about our own lives because we're asleep, (laughs) and we aren't able to keep and care about other people that we love in our lives because we're asleep, God himself is keeping and caring and preserving for us and those we love. That's why I love the prayer for families at the end of the prayer book. There's a prayer for freedom from worry right before you go to bed. And listen to the language. It's one of my favorite prayers in the whole prayer book. It says, oh, Lord, think about praying this at the end of the labors of your day. O Lord, who has pity for all our weaknesses, put away from us worry and every anxious fear. That having ended the labors of the day in your sight and committing all our tasks, ourselves, and all we love into your keeping. May you now give us that priceless gift of sleep through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So the voice that seeks to assure us and encourage us that there is indeed the help that we confess tells us first that the Lord is our keeper. That is who he is. And then tells us second who it is that is kept and what they are kept from. You, you are kept. Your life, you're going out and you're coming in. And what are you kept from? all evil. Verses seven and eight, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever more. Now, if you're like me, right away, the question that I'm asking is, how do we understand the promise of verse seven, that we're going to be kept from all evil in light of the hardship and the persecution and the suffering that God's people inevitably experience? Sometimes even to the point of martyrdom. Now. We could go back and forth about this for a while, but I take the phrase from all evil in kind of a telescopic ultimate sense of that promise. It's not that there will be no harm, no suffering, no affliction, no pain. That is never what the scriptures claim for God's people. It's more that these realities are guaranteed that they will be temporary, that they will not have the final word and the final say on the life of God's people. Bishop Todd used to say, you're always safe in the kingdom of God. It's a phrase that I've heard many of you repeat, and it's a wonderful phrase. And I think that's what he's getting at. When your security is grounded in God and his righteousness and his kingdom, a lot of things may come your way. (laughs) But you're always safe there because you're rooted and you're grounded in eternal realities, the realities that are going to endure. All the rest is going to be shaken up, and God's going to say no to it one day. You are always safe in the kingdom of God. And I think that's why Paul in Ephesians 6, when he talks about putting on the armor of God and he talks about being in this spiritual battle with these unseen forces, he ends that letter saying, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. With love incorruptible because God keeps us and preserves us. This is what St. Patrick, the father of Celtic Christianity, I think understood so well. In Ephesians six, you get that phrase, the breastplate of righteousness, which you guys all know. And St. Patrick wrote a prayer that was meant to be kind of a daily morning prayer for divine protection. And he called it, it's called St. Patrick's breastplate. And so I want to end by just reading you a few stanzas from that prayer. It's marvelous. Look it up on Google when you get home. He says this, I arise today, think about saying this in the morning. We've talked about praying at night. Now think about the morning. Through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness, the creator of creation." I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth with his baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion and burial, through the strength of his resurrection and ascension, and through his strength of his coming again. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's shield to protect me, and God's host to save me. From snares of the devil, from temptation devices, and from everyone who shall wish me ill afar and near. He will keep you from all evil. And then he ends with these words. I rise today in the name of Christ. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right hand and Christ on my left hand, Christ when I lie down and Christ when I sit up, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every person who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear who hears me. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is your keeper. Today you arose in the strength of Christ. Tonight you will sleep in the strength of Christ. And in the end, in the end, he will keep us from all evil. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.